It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Christy Taylor in New York. And I'm Timothy Revel, also in New York. This week on the show, why men in the United States are dying younger than women, even more so than in past decades. Plus, why some bonobos are the life of the party when it comes to making friends with members of other groups. And how you can make tiny lasers from soap bubbles. And this might even be one you can try at home. But first, James Deneen is here with new estimates of how much carbon could be stored in the world's forests. While many climate projects focus on planting new trees, the good news is that the trees we already have still have potential to do even more to combat climate change and reduce atmospheric carbon. James, what's going on? Yes, so... The world's forests are currently one of the most important and most threatened stores of carbon. All the trees and plants and soil and forest ecosystems contain something like 850 billion tons of carbon. That's a lot. Yeah, I feel like now's the point where I get out a foam finger that says go trees on it and start sharing. (laughs) Totally. Trees are doing great work already, but human influence means the planet's forests don't store nearly as much carbon as they could. Large swaths of forest have been cut down for agriculture or cities, and many existing forests are degraded or logged. There's very little old-growth forest left with those big trees and rich soils that store lots of carbon. And now a group of more than 200 researchers have used satellite data and measurements of more than a million forest plots around the world to put forward a new estimate of how much more carbon forests could store. And they found it's between 221 and 472 billion tons of carbon. To put that in perspective, that's about one-third to two-thirds of the total amount of carbon humans have emitted since the Industrial Revolution. I feel like I have to just say holy cow, which I would want to replace (laughs) with more of a swear word, actually, because that's just – that's a huge number. Are we only, though, just learning this now? Yeah. Well, it's it's a lot – But it is in line with similar estimates that other researchers have made in the past. But this team went one further to look at where specifically all that additional carbon could be stored. And they found about a third of it is in places that are currently used for agriculture or cities or other human uses. So restoring forests there is a pretty unlikely prospect. But they found about 87 billion tons of that could be stored in areas where forests have been removed but that aren't currently used for cities or for agriculture. So it might be more feasible to restore forests there. So that's back to planting new trees in those places. But more interesting in some ways, they also found much of that potential storage is already in 
places where there are forests. Between 108 and 228 billion tons of carbon could be stored in existing forests simply by protecting them from deforestation and degradation so they can reach full maturity. So just by allowing existing forests to reach maturity, you're saying we may be able to store as much as a third of all the carbon we've emitted since the Industrial Revolution. Is that too good to be true? What's the catch? Yeah, well, there are lots of catches, as usual. For one, protecting all the world's existing forests is not really an easy or simple thing. Despite decades of pledges about slowing and stopping deforestation, we're still cutting down trees all over the place. My colleague Michael LePage covered a recent report from several environmental organizations that found global deforestation actually increased 4% between 2021 and 2022. Also, there are, of course, lots of reasons to protect forests beyond storing carbon in them, such as the extraordinary biodiversity they contain. But if what you care about is storing carbon to slow climate change, forests may not store it fast enough to mitigate emissions now. One researcher told me it might take decades to centuries for a forest to reach its full carbon potential. The researchers also acknowledged that their theoretical estimates could be too high for a number of reasons. For instance, they didn't look at how increasingly intense fires would affect carbon storage in forests or how climate change itself might affect how forests grow. The important piece, though, is not the absolute number of how much carbon could be stored, which researchers I spoke with said is probably not achievable. It's more about recognizing the scale of how important forests are for storing carbon. So what does this mean about for planting new trees, such as there are campaigns like the Trillion Trees campaign that is all about planting new trees? What does this tell us about those? Well, planting trees and forest restoration can absolutely help store carbon. But if it's done wrong, you know, with giant monocultures, it can also be bad for biodiversity and local and indigenous communities. A few of the researchers behind this study actually sparked some controversy a few years ago with another paper that estimated how much carbon could be stored by restoring forests. It was widely interpreted as support for these mass tree planting efforts without sufficiently recognizing the damage they can cause. So this study was partly an attempt to move past that controversy to emphasize that a lot more carbon could be stored in forests, even without planting, say, a trillion trees. Our next story is about a worrisome drop in life expectancy in the United States, especially for men. And just a warning, this next segment will briefly touch on suicide. So if that's not for you, please skip to the next story. For this one, Corinne Wetzel is here to tell us more. Corinne, what can you tell us about this drop we're seeing in life expectancy in the US? Yes, first something researchers had found is that Americans are dying earlier than they have in decades. So between 2019 and 2021, the average age of death for everyone dropped from 78.8 years to 76.1 years. That's a drop of more than two and a half years. And a new study looking at data from the U.S. National Center for Health Statistics found that this death gap, which is the average age that men die versus when women die, is actually growing. Men now die nearly six years before women on average. Yeah, I guess we're all familiar with the idea that men have shorter life expectancies than women, but that this gap is growing, that seems pretty troublesome. Right. So men have always had shorter life expectancies than women on average. And there are a few reasons for that. Men tend to have higher rates of heart disease and have riskier jobs that might lead to fatalities. But this death gap had been closing. So in 1996, it was just 4.8 years. So we had a positive trend and now we've shifted out of that. Why is the gap now closer to six years? 
So as part of the study, researchers looked at a lot of death records to figure out what are these factors that are contributing most to this shift. Um, and they found that maybe unsurprisingly, the pandemic was a really big influence. And that's because men, when they get COVID-19, tend to get sicker and require hospitalization more often than women do. Also, something to keep in mind is that researchers only looked at data that include men and women, so we don't have a clear picture about what this means for people who fall outside of that binary. Is it too simple then to blame COVID-19 for this increased mortality gap then? Right. So this isn't just about COVID-19. The second biggest cause of mortality was what researchers call deaths of despair. Oh, deaths of despair. That does sound really grim. What does it actually mean, scientifically speaking? Deaths of despair is a bit what it sounds like. So these include deaths that are related to drug and alcohol use. Opioid overdoses were a big one. Things like suicide, firearm accidents, and deaths related to incarceration. But there are also cultural and social factors like openness to seeking mental health care, which statistically women are more likely to do. Is the US an outlier on this or is this widening death gap, is that happening outside the US as well? So this study pulled data from U.S. deaths only, so we can't say for certain if this is going on elsewhere, but some of the factors that are driving the shorter life expectancy for U.S. men, things like COVID-19, workplace accidents, those are probably playing out in other countries as well. It's also worth noting that because it can take researchers years to analyze and make sense of this kind of data, these death records they looked at were from 2020 and 2021, so they actually don't take into account the last two years. So are the folks that you spoke with hopeful that we can you know, we had this decrease in the gap in the years up to now, can we start to close the gap again? Or could this trend continue? Right. So as COVID-19 related deaths fall, these researchers are expecting life expectancy for everyone will improve, which is good news. But when it comes to these deaths of despair, that one might have a longer shadow. It might take more targeted efforts and outreach like specialized mental health care for men to start to begin to close this gap. I should also say that if you or anyone you know is struggling with their mental health, there are some hotlines you can call. The UK Samaritans are at 116-123, and the US Suicide and Crisis Lifeline can be reached by dialing 988. And we'll include links to these and other resources in our show notes. Thanks so much, Corinne. Tim and I are always here to tell you the most interesting news in science and technology. But if you're looking to get away from it all, why not leave the planet entirely and spend some time admiring Earth from space? This week on Culture Lab, we've got an interview from our errant host, Rowan Hooper. He talked to author Samantha Harvey about her new book, Orbital, which he calls, quote, a beautiful love letter to Earth from the International Space Station. And in a similar but completely different vein, what if our planet was cube-shaped? Well, Chelsea White and Leia Crane, the only people who would be brave enough to pose this question, have an absolute doozy of a finale for the first season of Dead Planet Society for you. Cube, Earth, Cube, Earth, Cube, Earth. <laughs> I truly love this idea, and I can't wait to find out how we could slice the planet's faces off. Thanks, Hannibal. <laughs> it turns out that this isn't just an aesthetic choice. The finale covers why our blocky Earth would have a vastly weirder magnetic field, and what exactly life would be like on those corner spots. This feels like a job for Minecraft, honestly. And this episode was so good that it is twice as long. We are dropping parts one and two starting Tuesday next week. Plus, mark your calendars for a special live event coming to your computers in just a couple weeks. How much do you know about the weed called cannabis? And how much of that is actually true? Health reporter Grace Wade is hosting a virtual event with physician and leading cannabis specialist Peter Grinspoon about the current state of research on this complex and controversial plant. 
From potential medical benefits to the known risks and side effects, he'll separate the science from the hype. That's coming up on Tuesday, November the 28th at 7pm Eastern Time, and we'll have a link in the show notes at newscientist.com slash podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's time for the life form of the week. Today, we have a happy story about primate behavior from our chimpanzee-like cousins, the bonobos. Bonobos are well known to be the friendlier member in the great ape family tree, where with chimps, aggression normally plays a huge role in their societal relations. For bonobos, it tends to be sex instead. And it turns out there's some nuance to how and why individual bonobos cooperate so easily with members of so-called rival groups. One of our news editors, Sam Wong, is here to tell us all about it. Hey, Sam. So what's so special about bonobos? Yes, yeah, so as you said, um, bonobos, they're close cousins of chimpanzees, and that means they're pretty close cousins for us too. But their behavior is very different to chimps. So whereas chimps are violent and aggressive and rival groups will fight to the death, bonobos are much more peaceful. And so that raises um, big questions about why they're so different and what does this tell us about humans and our own capacities for both cooperation and violent conflict? Uh, and like you said, the uh, bonobos are well known for for having a lot of sex, and sometimes they use sex to kind of resolve conflict within the group. But um, we don't know so much about how different groups of bonobos interact. They've generally been studied a lot less than chimps. So this week we reported on a study by Liren Samuni and Martin Serbak at Harvard. And they spent two years observing uh, two groups of bonobos in the Democratic Republic of the Congo to find out more about uh, their tendency to cooperate. And what did they find out? Well, when different groups of bonobos meet, they would often spend quite a lot of time hanging out together. Sometimes this would be for hours or sometimes for several days. They would just you know, travel, rest, feed together. And there's a remarkable level of tolerance between the groups. So as, as we said, chimps will often fight each other to the death. But in, in bonobos, they just don't act in, the, in that violent way. And actually, um, cooperative interactions are really common. So for example, bonobos would groom each other with um, uh, members of the other group and sometimes they would share food even. But this doesn't happen across the board. It's a bit like at a party when uh, most people just talk to the people they already know, but there are a few people who make an effort to meet new people. So there are bonobos in each group that are really sociable, and the sociable ones in one group seek out the sociable ones in another group, and they cooperate with them, they groom each other, because they're more likely to get something in return. Yeah, with grooming in particular, it seems almost literally like a, if you scratch my back, I scratch yours sort of situation. Is this, do the researchers think, why they cooperate so easily? They know they're going to get something in return? 
Yeah, some of the time there was this immediate mutual benefit. So one grooms the other and they uh, they get the same thing in return. But a lot of the time there wasn't an immediate return of the favor. So some uh, bonobos would share food with the other bonobos and then the researchers kept track of who was sharing with who. And they found that even over the whole two years, they, they didn't see the same bonobo returning the favor. So, you know, generally in animals, altruistic behavior can either be explained by a genetic relatedness or uh, reciprocity. So, you know, they'll get something in return. But in this case, those don't seem to apply. There's not very much interbreeding between the groups. So there's not a lot of relatedness. And, and as we said, like a lot of the time, there's no immediate return. Yeah. And you mentioned how aggressive chimps are in contrast to bonobos. Does research like this start to help us even begin to understand why those two great apes are so similar in some ways and yet so different in this one very key behavioral way? It's still a subject of debate, uh, but there's this idea called the self-domestication hypothesis. So in some animals, you see a set of characteristics that are very similar to what happened in animals that were domesticated by humans. So they have a more docile temperament, they spend more time playing, they have a smaller skull, shorter teeth, and things like this. And the idea is that there was some kind of environment that selected against aggression, and that led to the same evolutionary change that occurs when humans are selecting the most docile animals to breed. So in chimps and bonobos, this might have happened when chimps' ancestors lived in the same areas as gorillas, so they had more competition for food. They had to be aggressive to succeed. But bonobos' ancestors uh, were separated from gorillas by the Congo River, and they lived in this land of plenty where there was less competition and they didn't need to be aggressive, so they were free to evolve this less aggressive way. But this is just a, this is just a hypothesis and not everyone buys it. It's a really nice story, though. And mm. I guess if we see chimpanzees and bonobos as two sides of sort of one behavioral coin, and humans maybe are somewhere in the middle in terms of like our aggression and our cooperation, can bonobo cooperation tell us anything about humans getting along? Yeah. Um, so obviously humans have got this sophisticated culture and society that enables us to cooperate very deeply with strangers by uh, trading resources, um, education, sharing information, and things like this, which is much more sophisticated than what happens in bonobos. But the researchers say that there are a lot of similarities as well. And what this uh, research shows is you don't need to have these strong cultural influences and social norms for cooperation between groups to emerge. It can just be this sort of instinctual thing. So maybe these kinds of behaviors have been present in the human lineage for a long time. And we shouldn't think that aggression and warfare are an inevitable, deeply ingrained ancestral trait in humans. Now from the Department of Making Fancy Machines with Simple Ingredients, a story about building lasers from soap bubbles, which on top of being a sophisticated technological feat, could also offer a more affordable way to sense differences in pressures or electric fields. Now, I know I can name many differences between a soap bubble and, for instance, a laser pointer, but a team of physicists were not discouraged by that, and Carmela Padovich-Callahan is here to help us understand why. Carmela, how do you turn a soap bubble into lasers? Pew, pew, pew. Yeah, I mean, this does sound uh, a little bit alchemical, but this team uh, very successfully made a whole bunch of tiny lasers from soap bubbles, some fluorescent dye, an optical fiber in the lens, so sort of a short list of ingredients. Some of the laser bubbles uh, or bubble lasers really were smaller than half a millimeter and some were a few centimeters large, and they all made a laser light. 
So these are simple ingredients in a lot of ways. And let's say I had all those things at home. How would I go about actually building that into a soap bubble laser? Can I build it at home? Right. To build a laser, you actually really need three sort of key ingredients. First, you need a cavity where you can have light bouncing back and forth repeatedly. And usually you do this with mirrors. But here, the researchers blew bubbles, sort of just pushed air to a small pipette to get a bubble, and then the light would bounce inside of the bubble off the sort of walls of the bubble internally in a kind of circular fashion. The second ingredient you need to make a laser is some material that can amplify the light as it bounces, which is where they use the fluorescent dye. So they just mix it into the bubble mixture. And this dye is sort of what you would put in like glowing paints or stuff like that, right? Like where you shine light on the, the dye and it starts to re-emit light as a glow. And then finally, the light has to come from somewhere. You've got the bubble that's your cavity. You've got the dye that will amplify the light. Where does the light come from? Well, they took an optical fiber. They put a lens on it to just focus the light a little bit. And then they shined it on the bubble. And there you go. There's your bubble laser. Does any old soap bubble work? Or is, are we talking some very specific soap bubble that only physicists have access to? Yeah. So amazingly, the researcher I spoke to quite literally told me that you could use dish soap or even the, the little bubble mixes that you can buy for kids at carnivals. His team did also make bubble lasers from liquid crystals, which are a little more stable. So they worked and they worked for longer so they could be uh, experimented on more broadly. But if you don't have liquid crystal lying around at home, soap <laughs> should do. Yeah, I, I don't, but I do have soap, so I'll be trying this. Let's say I did make my own bubble laser at home, just like you described. What could I use it for? If you had a little more optics equipment, you could uh, make a really good sensor for electric field and pressure, or especially for changes in electric fields and pressure around your apartment. So if you walked over to where there's a wire and all wires have an electromagnetic field and you put your bubble laser next to it, the interaction with the electric part of the field would distort the shape of the bubble, which would then change the properties of the light. So if you were measuring the laser light from the bubble laser, like next to the wire and further away from the wire, the change in shape would change the, the properties you're measuring just a little bit, and then you could sort of reverse engineer how strong the electric field was. And the bubble laser method of doing this is good not just for wires in your house. It's actually very, very sensitive. So the researcher told me that you could sort of go outside on a sunny day with no thunderstorms around and still pick up on the innate electric field in the atmosphere. And then the same idea works for pressure as well. If there's a pressure variation in your environment, the bubble will get compressed a little bit. And again, measuring the properties of its laser beam will tell you just how much. That is incredible. And I, I guess making bubbles is pretty cheap and simple as far as sensors go. Yeah. I mean, this is like a, a huge selling point on these bubble lasers is that if you break one of them, you just make another bubble, which is significantly <laughs> more affordable than fixing any kind of electronic device. Now, of course, the researchers have already started to work on how to make this into, into handheld devices, how to like encase these bubbles in, in something so you're not just blowing bubbles in the lab. And that makes it more complicated. But again, you know, as, as we talked before, the ingredients for this are so simple that it could really give you some benefits in terms of affordability and, and just kind of like replaceability of well. 
Christy, there was an update this week on COVID-19 and the drug Paxlovid that some people take when diagnosed to reduce the risk of severe illness. Mm. So people who take it, they do experience a real lessening of symptoms and possibly a lower risk of long COVID. But some people also have this sort of rebound effect where the virus comes back a few days after they stop taking the drug. And it turns out this rebound effect might happen in as many as 20% of people. 20% is so high. I... I remember that even President Biden experienced this rebound, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Does this also seem to happen, though, when people don't take Paxlovid? Occasionally. So in this new analysis, they found that it is only in in about 2% of people who hadn't taken Paxlovid that they get this rebound effect. So overall, your risk of rebound is about 10 times higher if you take the drug. That feels like a really significant consideration for what I would do if I got COVID again. I mean, Does this change anything for for other people who are trying to make those decisions? It might. So on the one hand, going to hospital and getting seriously ill is something that should be avoided as much as possible, which Paxlovid, of course, protects against. But this rebound, on top of being uncomfortable because you're possibly symptomatic for longer, it has consequences for virus spread throughout the population, too. If the virus is replicating in your body for longer, even if you actually don't feel very sick, you're more likely to pass it on to someone else. And some researchers have suggested that the rebound problem means Paxlovid should be prescribed for longer than the current five days because it's not doing enough to reduce viral populations in the body. So there's definitely some details there still for medical professionals to work out. Well, here's a riddle for you. How do you catch a comet? Moving on to something to completely different. <laughs> uh... With your bare hands after loading up on asteroids? No, that's... Oh, my (laughs) freaking God, Tim. (laughs) No, go on. Tell me, how do you catch a comet? Okay, well, for being whimsical, it's like the song goes, you catch a shooting star and you put it in your pocket with your bare hands, I guess. (laughs) But in this case, on a more scientific front, we're talking more about getting a comet to hit a rocky planet very slowly in the name of creating life. So there's a theory that ingredients for life, especially organic molecules, can travel, say via comets, to places where life might actually then be able to take root. So in the example of Earth and how this might apply to Earth, it's the idea that maybe some comets smashed into us, brought us organic molecules, which then on our very hospitable planet had a chance to cook from this kind of prebiotic soup into the cells and organisms we know and love. Mmm, delicious prebiotic soup. (laughs) It all sounds so easy. In theory, yeah, but you got to define the right conditions for this to actually work, and that's a big challenge. One problem is that comets move very, very, very fast Mm. uh, in the neighborhood of 20 kilometers per second, and if something is hitting another something very fast, not much is likely to survive impact at those kinds of speeds, you know, even organic molecules. So a team at the University of Cambridge looked at simulations of conditions where they could possibly slow down some comets to more life-friendly speeds, like how a solar system could catch a comet. This sounds less, to me, something for researchers at the University of Cambridge and more something for the Dead Planet Society, where suddenly they bring in some interstellar quicksand or some crazy contraption to slow them down. So we have interstellar quicksand. It's called gravity. (laughs) And the research team found two different scenarios where they could slow a high-speed comet down by 5 or even 10 kilometers per second, which ideally does offer you a chance to leave uh, like this smear of organic molecules on whatever you hit. One kind of scenario might be you have a star system where the star is just very, very, very massive. So 
everything orbiting that star tends to be a bit slower as a result. The other idea is that you could have a lot of rocky planets pretty close together. And the idea here is that they'd kind of pass a comet around gravitationally until it slowed down, maybe like a slow motion reverse game of pinball or something like that. And then boom, at some point there's a collision and you have your rocky planet covered in delicious, tasty prebiotic soup, mere steps away from the genesis of podcast hosts. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the pinnacle of evolution. (laughs) All right, moving on. If you ever wished you could master poker, chess, and go all at the same time? Well, I've got good news for you. There is now an AI for that. (laughs) Well, I I admit I'm not particularly good at any of those games. So I guess that's one job that AI is welcome to take away from me. Yeah, I'm also not good at any of those games. But this is an AI from Google DeepMind, the same people who made the Go-playing AI AlphaGo, very famously, and also the poker-playing AI DeepStack. And while in the past AIs have typically only been trained to do one kind of task very, very well, especially DeepMind's AIs, this new one, which is called Student of Games, it can beat humans at two very different types of tasks. Yeah, I mean, when I think of poker and chess, they do feel like very different kinds of games. You know, poker is a lot more about like trying to guess what's happening right now, what cards the other player has. There's some randomness. And then chess is really calculating based on a board that everyone can see. There's nothing you can really hide from your opponent. Yeah, exactly. And both those types of games, which are called imperfect knowledge, the one where in poker where you don't know what the cards the other person has are, and perfect knowledge, like in chess where you can see all of the pieces, that's the name for these two types of games. They take different approaches to master because, you know, there's bluffing, there's working out what your opponent has, Mm -hmm. and then there's also just how many moves can you think ahead based on perfect information. Well, student of games, it was able to learn and adapt to both kinds of game. And even though it didn't perform quite as well as the more specialized AIs, it still beat the best human players in most of the games that it learned. And then if you're wondering, well, so what? It's still just games. Yeah, I'm still wondering that. Well, the people who make AIs like this see games as an aspect of intelligence. So humans can learn all these types of games, both poker-like games and chess-like games, and widely regarded as intelligent species. (laughs) So the more generally proficient you can get your AI to be at these types of games, perhaps the closer you can get to approximating human-like intelligence. Or at least, that's the idea. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. You can find all the stories we talked about today in the show notes, and you can subscribe to this podcast on whichever app you're listening on. Plus, if you like the great stories we're bringing you, please give us a rating or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We love talking about this stuff, but it's even more fun when we know what you're listening and we know what you think about it. So let us know your thoughts. Please someone tell Tim that the asteroids joke was terrible. Thank you. Uh, Yes, if you could let me know, because otherwise I'll be unsure about that. That's all from us now, and we'll be back next week. Bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Mm-hmm.